Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, I think for all our Brussels Sprouts listeners and um, the world writ large now, it's abundantly clear that China will be the primary focus of the Biden administration's foreign policy. And that focus, uh, the China conversation, has really become a defining feature of transatlantic relations. You, you really can't escape it. Uh, earlier this month, we also had Secretary of State Anthony Blinken at the NATO Foreign Ministerial putting a very heavy emphasis on China as a critical threat facing the NATO alliance. Uh, but I, there's still a, a very active and a very important debate over the role that NATO and Europe should play in the Indo-Pacific and in the broader uh, contest and competition with China. Some are calling for maybe what we could call a divide and conquer model uh, with Europe handling Russia, freeing up the United States to focus on the Indo-Pacific. Others have called for more of a risk sharing model um, across the two theaters. And so today on uh, this edition of Brussels Sprouts, that's the debate that we're going to take on. We're gonna address that question head on of what Europe's role in the Indo-Pacific and in the competition with China should be. And to discuss that question, we have two um, really excellent guests with us today. Uh, first, we have Sarah Muller, who is assistant professor at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. And she's also the author of a recent Washington Post op-ed that garnered quite a lot of attention in the transatlantic community, uh, where she advocated that NATO should play a greater role in addressing the China challenge. And we're also joined by Ian Berzinski, who is a resident senior fellow at the Scrocroft Center for Strategy and Security and is on the Atlantic Council's advisory, strategic advisors group. Uh, he's also held a number of additional government positions in the U.S. Department of Defense and U.S. Congress, um, including serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO policy from 2001 to 2005. Welcome, both of you. Pleasure. Thank you. So Ian was my boss, so I have to make sure everybody knows that up front that, uh, you know, every now and then he, he still uh, hammers down on me. So I'll be very, you know, careful as I speak uh, during the during the podcast. That's what, I don't, well, does that mean you're going to give him some softball questions or does this mean this is your chance to get him back and put him on the hot seat and, and it, take it him means, to task? It means that he succeeded me and therefore he executed a coup. <laughs> in our office. That's right. I got it out of my system, but we'll see. We'll just see how this goes. <laughs> well, maybe we can start um, kind of hearing from both of you, starting with the kind of the 10,000 foot level question of how you would both describe the challenge that China poses to NATO. And Sarah, I don't know if you want to take that on first. Sure. Let me just uh, mention I'm a longtime fan and listener of the podcast, so it's a thrill to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I think the best place to start is probably with a, a brief summary of the Washington Post outlook place uh, outlook piece, excuse me, that you uh, referenced, which made three related arguments. None of which, in themselves, I think, are revolutionary, though that the conclusion is admittedly slightly provocative, and it was intended to spur precisely the kind of discussion we're having today. My starting point is that NATO has been struggling with its identity for some time, and I don't think that statement comes as a surprise to any of our listeners. Um, the post-Cold War mission creep that the alliance has engaged in, where we saw the cooperative security and crisis management mandates being elevated to the status of core tasks. Uh, there is a tendency which continues to this day within NATO to add more to the agenda. Um, and I would argue that just because NATO is the most capable alliance doesn't mean it should be the primary institution for dealing with all manner of security uh, challenges, security writ large. And here I recognize there may be some pushback. Well, uh, aren't I advocating for NATO to take on yet another task with China? I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, the second point was that uh, I argue, and here I don't think it's uh, that uh, unorthodox of you, and there's certainly been a lot of movement uh, in this debate within the last couple of weeks since the op-ed came out as well, uh, that NATO needs to pay more attention to China's rise. And it's already started doing that, right? Uh, the Secretary General, Jan Stoltenberg, has been a leading figure in this going back to the London 2019 declaration 
collaboration. But I think the Biden team needs to do more to utilize the uh, alliance uh, and not just focus on our Pacific allies when we talk about developing a U.S.-China strategy. And the third uh, point I made follows from the first, which is that if NATO is going to start focusing more on China's threat and challenges to the alliance, then that means to me something has got to give. Um, I was uh, a little concerned when Secretary Austin at the Spring Defense Ministerial mentioned international cooperation and organized crime in a laundry list of items that NATO might tackle. These ideas, international cooperation and organized crime, are ideas that have been around for some time, but I don't think NATO is the right venue for addressing them. Uh, President Biden similarly has talked about climate change and COVID, but I think NATO has probably gone as far as it can on COVID in terms of its early uh, movement early in the pandemic in, in transporting PPE supplies. Blinken's public comments last month at the first foreign ministerial, which you referenced, Andrea, um, were a we're slightly better in this regard in that I noticed he did uh, lay out a priority by discussing three categories of threats. And here, interestingly, he put China before Russia in the first category when he was discussing traditional military threats. The second category uh, he identified was non-military threats from these countries and others, technological, economic, uh, and informational challenges that threaten our collective security. And then he ranked third, uh, climate change and uh, COVID-19. But I think going forward, uh, the main challenge will be to add focus, to prioritize among issues and challenges. And for me, that means something has to give or something has to be downgraded. Ian, do you want to either respond to anything that Sarah said or maybe just kind of lay out your view of the, the, the threat, the risk, the challenge that China poses to European security? Thanks, Andrea. You know, it's clear that um, China is becoming the issue du jour, and, and rightly so. It was the most prominent focus of discussions in the last foreign ministerial meeting last month. Uh, it's probably going to be the central focus of an upcoming NATO summit to be scheduled this year, and it will probably be the most controversial dimension when it comes down to the NATO 2030 review that's underway, and then an expected update of NATO strategic concept. And that concept, if it really takes on the Indo-Pacific, will really globalize NATO's agenda. I, I think it, it's imperative that NATO be engaged in the Indo-Pacific and as part as a, and as part of a key as a key element of the West's strategy towards China. It can't afford to be on the sidelines of what is going to be a definitive competitive dimension of international affairs. This is the emergence of China. So. The Alliance has to play a central role in a comprehensive transatlantic strategy designed to shape its relationship with China, designed to deter aggression and provocation from Russia, from China, and designed to foster a constructive relationship with China. You know, China is a full spectrum threat, and it's a full spectrum threat that surpasses the one that we, was posed by the former Soviet Union. The, uh, you know, you were talking a $14 trillion economy, uh, economy that could surpass that of the United States and the EU. It exercises economic power in a predatory fashion around the globe, on our shores, on our Europe, on European shores. It's a technological challenge. You know, you know the list: 5G, AI, hypersonics, uh, quantum computing. Uh, it uses that, those powers in an, in an aggressive way through cyber espionage, disinformation campaigns. Its military power is, is of increasing concern. It's not only increasingly dominant in the, in the Indo-Pacific, it has increasing global reach. Uh, its activities in the South and East China Sea stand among its most prominent aggressive assertions of power. Uh, it's also a rising nuclear power, which will probably in the foreseeable future match US and Russian uh, nuclear arsenals. And it relishes its role as an ideological challenge to, to, to the West. Uh, it's pushing assertively its, its, form of own, its own form of national authoritarianism as an alternative to the democratic structures and values that embody, uh, constitute the Western community uh, that uh, NATO was a part. So NATO has to be engaged in this. And I would argue a NATO role in Indo-Pacific is going to lead to a more effective 
Western strategy in dealing with China. And conversely, a NATO role, a failure by NATO to, to play a significant role uh, in the Indo-Pacific is not only going to lead to a weaker Western strategy towards China, it will probably also lead to a division within the transatlantic community. Those are those are excellent uh, interventions, and uh, and I um, and I agree with I agree with you both. And I, but I go back to um, to Sarah's point about so what gives? How can we how can we make this uh, happen? Uh, how can we operationalize this? Because Russia reminded us this past week that they are there on the continent and uh, they are posing a threat that's got uh, UCOM increasing its alert rate and my phone ringing off the hook yesterday from journalists calling saying, what do you think? What do you think? What are the Russians doing here? And you can imagine if you talk to Poles uh, and others on the front lines with Russia, they're going to go, wait a minute now, you know, uh, yeah, I got you on China, but I've got a problem right across the border and look what they're doing right now. So if you're in Brussels uh, and you're the section, um, how do you, how do you, how do you figure out what gives? As Sara said, what gives? How can you, you know, how can you get? How can you manage not just these two threats, but also these other security issues? And Sara, you rightly raised them uh, in terms of COVID and climate change and these types of things. Those aren't going to go away. And there's people knocking on the door to NATO saying you guys can play a role in this. I know you don't want to. I know it's not military. I know it's not a, a big uh, military challenge here, but this is something that NATO, you've got to help out now. So how do you how do you make this work? How do you operationalize this division of labor? How do you do it? What do you think, Sarah? A couple of points. First, I think you're right that that is the $64,000 question, right? How does NATO strike, strike a balance right now between the Russia threat and the China threat? One thing I would say is, and NATO is already moving on this, it's a question of how uh, engaged the European Union will be, the other headquarters in Brussels, but establishing a division of duties between NATO and the EU, something that uh, we've long heard talk of and that uh, the US government on previous occasions has been a little skittish about, but which I think there actually would be a lot of support for in the current administration. The other point I think I'd make here is that, um, as I see it, I think NATO can offload some of the counterterrorism uh, responsibilities. I know the French are, are, are quite active in uh, Northern Africa and the Sahel. This is also uh, an opportunity for the European Union to do more uh, in that uh, arena. But I want to go back to something that Ian said a moment ago, because I actually agree with his characterization of the threat that China poses to NATO, but not his conclusion. Um, and this is, again, strikes me as the heart of the matter, right? It's not so much a question of whether NATO should address China as how it should do so and how to go about doing it. And Ian laid out a persuasive case that NATO needs to do more in the Indo-Pacific. For me, I think that's a bridge too far right now. I think that despite the movement we've seen uh, in many European countries in the last 18 to 12 months in particular on China and even given uh, China's uh, assertive foreign policy and Twitter diplomacy of late, um, I think there's still an enough, and then, and, excuse me, I, th I think there's still uh, opposition or an anathema to, uh, to uh, Europe uh, and, and, and NATO in particular doing more in the Indo-Pacific, right? Um, the problem is, is still, as I see it, and this was some of the pushback that I got from my op-ed, even though I was quite clearly not um, advocating for a NATO role in the Indo-Pacific, was that as soon as you mention NATO and China in the same sentence, um, a lot of people sort of tune out, they stop listening, uh, and then they immediately uh, conjure up visions of NATO flag vessels in the South China Seas, despite the fact that the Secretary General has gone on record saying, we're not there yet, that's not what we're talking about. And so for me, there's a lot that NATO can be doing to address China's rise as it pertains to uh, uh, North Atlantic members of the alliance, right, uh, the members themselves. Uh, 
But And there are also things that NATO can be doing in terms of broadening and deepening its membership uh, arrange, excuse me, its partnership arrangements with the global partner programs uh, and, and, and uh, America-specific allies. But I think a bridge too far right now, I don't think the Europeans are quite prepared to talk about uh, NATO operations in the Indo-Pacific right now. Ian, do you want to respond? Sure, yeah. I, you know, first, NATO already has a president for operating in the Indo-Pacific. It operates on a global basis. It's been involved in Afghanistan since 2003. It patrols off the shores of Africa. It's part of the coalition to defeat ISIS. Uh, every day, it's dealing with global issues, be it terrorism, cyber threats, disinformation, and such. And while I agree with Sarah that NATO needs to pare back some of the areas in which it operates. Here, I'm not talking about geography, but you know, disinformation and things that are outside of the realm of throwing lead down range. Because that's what NATO's focus is, is throwing lead down range. And that's where its, it's, it's role ought to be. And I would argue also in the Pacific. You know, we have a foundation of global partnerships, or NATO has a foundation of global partnerships in, in the Indo-Pacific with the Republic of Korea, New Zealand, Mongolia, Australia, and Japan. They're largely consultative, but I would add most of those countries have contributed to NATO missions, including in Afghanistan. Uh, so there's, there is a precedent for that role. While, the, while Europeans right now may not, some Europeans may not like the idea of expanding NATO's role, you know, that's their opinion. I can only give you mine. And I would say it's imperative uh, for the Alliance to have that role, an expanded role in, in the Pacific, if we're going to have a truly effective Western strategy, transatlantic strategy for, for China. Uh, and, you know, what can that be? It can be, it doesn't have to be, quote unquote, another full the gap deployment. It can be something far more, more reasonable and budgetarily feasible and certainly operationally feasible. The fundamental roles for, for the alliance when it comes down to a transatlantic strategy for China are one, to foster awareness within the community about what China is doing, what its capacities are, what the risks are, what are the threats, what are the opportunities for collabor collaboration. Second, NATO can serve as a, uh, a catalyst to develop and promulgate a transatlantic security strategy when it comes down to China, the military dimension of a transatlantic strategy for, for China. Uh, you know, and that strategy should be geared towards pushing back against Russia, uh, Chinese assertiveness and also to figure out where we can cooperate together. And then third, it can use its civilian and military capacities uh, to execute that uh, military dimension of the West's comprehensive strategy towards China. And so the things that I'm thinking about are not a massive military deployment, but very reasonable things. Some of them more symbolic, some of them more operational. Establish a NATO or offer to establish a NATO China Council, kind of like the NATO Russia Council we have. You know, that would spur the allies to act in a more coordinated manner when it comes towards China. And more importantly, it would underscore to the Chinese that great power competition uh, between China and, and the West is not between China and the United States, but actually between China and the transatlantic community. That's an important message to send. It can also be a forum to identify you know, where the opportunities for collaboration are. We should deepen and operationalize our, co our, our partnership with uh, Pacific, you know, the global Pacific partners, move from consultations to actual exercises and maybe even operations in the realm of freedom of navigation and such. Set up a center of excellence in one of the partners, maybe even set up a small military headquarters, a NATO military headquarters in the region to facilitate these engagements and cooperations. That puts NATO's skin in the game when it comes down to the West military dimension of its strategy regarding China. And that communicates a lot. It, it does not have to be a crushing bur burden, but in the absence of it will signal a lack of unity uh, on, on part of the West and part of the transatlantic community. You know, I, 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 Ian, as, as always, you've, you've come up with great ideas, a whole laundry list of those. Um, but I'm 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 thinking that it might be uh, before we get to those kinds of ideas being done by NATO, I think we've got a problem with individual allied nations that we're going to have to do a lot of bilateral work with to get them to that point. Um, the you know, and we all know why. I mean, there's such a, an economic uh, um, 
you know, tangle between China and a lot of the European nations, as well as some political problems there, too, where some individual allied nations are saying, well, you know, screw the United States on this. We've got our own relationship with China. Uh, we don't like, uh, particularly after the last few years, we don't like taking orders from you. And so I think to, to get NATO to a point where NATO as an alliance at, at consensus can come up with these things, I think we've got a lot of of preliminary work to do and and bilaterally to get nations to come along on this. And I think we start off with a coalition of the willing to do this. And in a sense, we've kind of done that. I mean, there's deployments. The Brits are going to make a big deployment out there. The Germans are going to send a ship, which is a big deal. Uh, and the French have been out there too. So I think um, I think we start off in a coalition of, a, of the willing and then work over the next few years, other allies to say, look, NATO can do these things without impacting your bilateral relationship with China or your economic, you know, we, we, we need to have the alliance start walking in this direction and we need you to come along with us. And I think we've got to be leaders in that and work it bilaterally. Yeah, Jim, as usual, you're, you said it much more eloquently than I did, but I think that's spot on, right? It's in terms of what's politically feasible in this moment right now. And given the skittishness on the part of some NATO European members about having the, the China conversation, right, uh, we have to recognize what is feasible in, in, in the interim, in the next six to three to five years, uh, six months to three to five years. Uh, and so, uh, I, uh, you know, if I was a betting person, and you asked me if in 20 years NATO is going to be operating in the Indo-Pacific, I would probably say yes. But it's about uh, initiating the conversation uh, and uh, it's going to play out over many years. So I would agree with what you said. On, on, on uh, some of Ian's uh, concrete proposals, uh, I, I think the NATO-China uh, Council is a great idea, this uh, structural mechanism for a dialogue. Um, unfortunately, I don't think uh, it, we're likely to see it in the next six to 12 months at least uh, because of uh, the, um, uh, you know, what is being called the tussle in the tundra, the uh, the fallout from, from the Anchorage summit and, and, uh, and other developments on U.S.-China relations. Uh, Beijing and Washington are still trying to feel each other out uh, with respect to the Biden administration. And of course, the problem we may run into uh, is the uh, down the road with the NATO China Council is the problem we've got with the NATO Russia Council right now, which hasn't met in several years, not because NATO isn't willing to meet as the Secretary General is at pains to note, but because there is no interest on the part of Moscow to meet. So uh, again, while I think this is a good idea, uh, I don't think uh, uh, in the next 18 months, we're likely to see much movement on this. Yeah, I can. Uh, the other I, that's that's one idea. The other idea that I think maybe Ian, you just mentioned too, would be more along the lines of an Indo-Pacific Council, in which which you know you you guys have both talked about the like a global partnership program, with the idea that there's kind of learning and sharing of best practices between a lot of these uh, Indo-Pacific allies who are on the front lines, in particular, of disinformation and other kind of gray zone tactics that China regularly employs to, to undermine and erode the democracies in that region. There's a lot I think European allies can learn from those. Um, and I again, I, I, just to reinforce what Jim said, doing it with through a coalition of the willing, I think is something that would be uh, an excellent way to get something like that off the ground. But the one thing I wanted to go back to, because this is the debater the maybe not a debate, but a discussion that people bring up quite commonly is the NATO EU coordination and cooperation and knowing and recognizing that NATO doesn't have all the tools um, that are necessary to counter and to compete with this full spectrum challenge, um, Ian, that you laid out earlier. So what, what is your understanding of the state of cooperation between the EU and NATO presently? And kind of how do you think about what that division of labor looks like and what we what NATO needs to be asking the EU to do um, to more effectively leverage the tools that it has? So let me just start out and make a clear assertion. Both are unbelievably important and successful institutions. They are also complementary institutions. And I come from the school where I like to see the transatlantic community when it comes down to transatlantic military operations to focus on NATO as the primary institution to facilitate that because we're all pulling from the same pool of forces. 
And that's what NATO was stood up to do, was stood up to throw lead down range. That's its, its, its expertise. And it's done so incredibly effectively. It won the Cold War. We've seen the, the effectiveness of US and European soldiers working together in Afghanistan and elsewhere around the world. The EU is not a military institution. It wasn't stood up to be a military institution, but it has a huge amount of capabilities when it comes down to you know, political coordination, economic coordination, promotion of democracy, democratic values, promotion of uh, rule of law and other um, realms of non-military non, non -military realms of operation, uh, including cyber and, 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 and disinformation. So I like to see kind of a complementary uh, distribution of, of responsibilities. I'm not uncomfortable with NATO getting more involved in the Middle East, in, in Africa. Uh, I'm not sh quite sure what the difference is between the EU doing it and NATO doing it because you're pulling from the same pool of forces. Uh, so when EU is doing more with military, it's pulling from a NATO pool of forces. Let's have no doubt about that. There's no need for duplicative military institutions to serve transatlantic interests. There is a need for both institutions to become more effective in addressing together a diversity of challenges in which they distribute those responsibilities between themselves. You know, focusing on areas where they're, mo they're, most, they're most effective. So when it comes down to China, I would like to see NATO play a, you know, or contribute to the military dimension of a comprehensive Western strategy. And I could see EU playing you know, an important political and economic role when it comes down to marshalling those aspects of Western power in the management of an emerging China. But don't, Ian, even on that military piece, so thinking about like dual use technologies or other things, it would be the EU, for example, that has like the investment screening mechanisms and the export controls and that stuff. So they're probably, I mean, I don't know how, to what degree that NATO is identifying some of these threats that it then needs EU tools to mitigate. You know, there's always going to be some areas of overlap, like on cyber. Both of them have to be coordinating on cyber. Uh, there are different dimensions of cyber management that are unique, unique to each institution, but they're going to be overlapping. Export controls is, is a good example. Um, I don't see NATO playing an export control role. I could see the EU doing that in coordination with NATO. That's kind of overlapping. What I think is a mistake is when the EU tries to take on responsibilities that mirror NATO's core, um, core capacity, which is, you know, bringing fighting forces to the field and winning on the battlefield. That's duplicative, that, and that's, that, that's wasteful. Uh, and it doesn't, quote unquote, add any new value or capability to the table. I think the challenge here is that increasingly some of these issues overlap uh, traditional military, societal, economic uh, divisions, right? Uh, when, when we look at resiliency, resilience, building on uh, resilience in NATO members, which is something that NATO has been quite focused on in, in, in recent years under Article 3, um, this is something for me uh, – Building, building societal and domestic resilience that uh, is inherently uh, up to nations and therefore in the case of Europe means the EU has to play uh, a larger role. And it's worth remembering that in some respects, the European Union was further ahead and out first on China than NATO was, right? The European Union labeled China systemic rival back in 2019, whereas at the London Declaration that year, uh, the phrasing that uh, Secretary General uh, uh, Stoltenberg used in in, in the, uh, the readout uh, was that China China's rise presented challenges and opportunities. Right, um, we've seen Stoltenberg and uh, others uh, do a lot of outreach to the EU in recent months in terms of speaking in the EU Council and other venues. Um, my impression, which is admittedly dated, because it follows uh, my uh, my last visit to NATO headquarters following the London summit in December of 2019, right before uh, the pandemic began. Uh, but my sense uh, from speaking with individuals there is that NATO is all on board in building uh, a stronger relationship with the European Union, in talking about a division of duties and areas of cooperation. Uh, there was on the part of the NATO officials I spoke to some skepticism about whether the other head quarters in Brussels, as they refer to it, felt the same way. But again, this is uh, slightly dated because it's December 2019 timeframe. 
Well, I think a lot of that is going to be answered, um, you know, in terms of the EU and and uh, what nations think as we get closer to the strategic concept. I mean, Ian raised this um, talking about the 2030 uh, approach that the SecGen is taking, and that's going to lead, of course, to the strategic concept. And that's where the allies around the table are going to have to negotiate a paragraph that talks about the alliance view of China and the role that the alliance will have in dealing with China. And that's when the nations are going to lay out all of their national positions. And a lot of times those national positions will also be based on what that national position is at the EU and then the role that they see the EU playing. So um, I think we we really got to get at that uh, strategic concept so that we can have those, those negotiations around the table and figure out where we are. I mean, you know, maybe we'll find that there is a lot more, um, you know, by the time we get around the table, that there's a lot more um, willingness to handle China among the allies, that we don't have the bilateral problem that we thought we did. Maybe there will be a lot more um, uh, push on NATO-EU cooperation in this area than we've ever seen before, because, you know, NATO-EU cooperation, my God, it's you know, it's pick and shovel work every year, but maybe this is going to give it a real impulse and boost. I don't know, but we've really got to get around that table so we can sort ourselves out politically and then we can march forward. Jim, you know, let me just underscore a point I tried to make in the beginning, and it gets to the big question that Andrea put out, you know, what's the West strategy going to be on, on China? Is it going to be divide and conquer in which, you know, as some have argued, the Europeans should focus on Russia? They make the case, you know, it's an $18, 19000000000000 trillion economy against a $1.2 trillion economy. Why can't they handle that? And then the United States will handle China, and that will be the great division of labor. Or a more integrated strategy in which we, together, both sides of the Atlantic, share in the risks of addressing both great power challenges. That's going to make the strategic concept in some ways, or how the strategic concept addresses this issue, a kind of an inflection point for the alliance, in my view. Right. Because I think if they go with the divide and conquer strategy, that's going to be the beginning of the end of the alliance. Because what's going to happen is the United States will go, okay, we're going to do this division of labor. We're going to focus our forces on China. And it will be a big pull of U.S. forces from Europe, from what is a substantial military presence right now, to something that is best symbolic. Uh, And that would be a real mistake. That would be a loss for the United States. That'd be a loss for Europe. And I think that'd be a real recipe uh, for increased instability, if not conflict in Europe, and yep. certainly a weaker U.S. position in, in the Indo-Pacific. That's However, right. if, the administ- if the alliance makes the right decision, in which in my view, which is sharing the risks, which is you know continued and probably a more robust U.S. military presence in Europe to reverse the declines we've had over the last you know, decade to a more a, an appropriate European military military presence under NATO in the Indo-Pacific, that's going to lead to a more effective Western strategy towards Russia, more effective Western strategy towards China, and that is a recipe for continued unity within the alliance in the foreseeable, if not long-term, future. And of course, that will also have us have the alliance go to the allies and say, "Okay, you're going to have to spend more on defense because if we're going to do it together, you know, you need to. We're going to need to bump that two percent up." <laughs> so you know, it comes down. It comes down to the Benjamins. <laughs> it comes down to nations saying, "You're right. We're going to have to do it this way." We need, you know, and they don't ever get to that point of increasing defense spending, putting money on the problem until something happens like Crimea and the Wales summit where we all get together and the, and the Germans and others say, okay, I guess we this time. Uh, and so I, I just, I don't want to have decisions made like that based on another invasion, another tragedy uh, that could be horrible, much worse than we saw with Crimea, to galvanize nations to do something. What would that look like? Something horrible in China. I mean, it's just, you know, but that seems to be the only thing that will push allies to put more money on defense. And if they don't put more money on defense, we're not going to be able to do both theaters. It's just, uh, it, it comes down to nations having the political will to put the money and the energy and the priority on defense and to do it right. So I have, like, just to kind of, just to go back to this question about 
kind of trade-offs or prioritization and whether or not you both think that we can do both, that we can share responsibility about both challenges. Because um, I, I mean, I think, well, I guess the question would be, to what extent are you concerned that the United States and NATO may be underestimating or overlooking the Russia challenge? I mean, Jim just reminded us about the Russian troops accumulating on the Ukraine border. Um, Russia still is, you know, a, the, the more likely threat um, in the present at this moment. And so are you at all concerned with all of this focus and the big push from the United States and now bringing that to NATO, what kind of signal is that sending to Moscow? I mean, the one thing that we do know is that Russia wants to be taken seriously. It doesn't wanna be overlooked. Um, and so are you concerned that we are sending a signal that could embolden the Russians to kind of you know, remind us that we can't take them for granted and that they are a major power that the United States and NATO can't overlook? Well, uh, probably one of the more controversial takes in my Washington Post op-ed was arguing that uh, the open door policy to Ukraine and Georgia should be uh, kicked down the road, or we should kick the can down the road a little bit longer and, and, and not uh, invite those members to join. And I recognize my timing is particularly bad, given that, as you just mentioned, Andrea and, and Jim, before you, that the Russian buildup on, uh, of military forces along the Danbas uh, border with Ukraine is happening as we speak. But I think Putin is testing the new administration, right? And I don't think he actually wants war. Uh, we can say a lot of things about Putin. He's an odious individual, um, but he's not stupid. That doesn't mean he hasn't miscalculated in the past, but I think that the one thing that might unite NATO members around Russia even more, because something we haven't mentioned is that they are also divided over Russia, not just China. I think the one thing that might unite NATO members around Russia is if uh, uh, he invaded uh, Ukraine again. Uh, so you can say a lot of things about Putin, um, but I think uh, 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 this is more bluster. Uh, and uh, uh, I think NATO has actually done a pretty good job uh, since 2014, uh, following on the Wales and Warsaw summits, uh, establishing uh, a stronger military presence in Eastern and Central Europe. Um, and so um, I tend to, while acknowledge that Russia poses lots of other challenges, um, I tend to think that the nature of the Russian threat uh, is not uh, obviously what it used to be. Uh, we're not worried about, or I'm not worried about um, their uh, um, uh, tank divisions rolling into Western Europe, right? It's, it's, it's much more about um, uh, cyber uh, disinformation um, and, and a host of other so-called hybrid threats that they pose right now to NATO members, in, in my opinion. I guess I strongly disagree. I mean, we, we've been through this scenario before where people would assert it's not in Russia's interest to invade Georgia. It's not in Russia's interest to invade Crimea. It's not in Russia's interest to go beyond Crimea. And we've had tanks rolling into, into those countries and into those regions. And now we're having a buildup of um, Russian forces. Uh, we're having an increased uh, level of violence in, in, in Ukraine. And my fear is that um, if Putin feels that uh, he has an opportunity because the West isn't fully unified and therefore capable to respond assertively to, to another role in, uh, he, he will act. So I'm not as sanguine as the administration is saying they're just trying to test us and prod us. You gotta take these buildups quite seriously because there's quite a track record of Russian aggression, uh, a track record of Russian invasion of its neighbors. And I'm worried right now that the West isn't providing a serious response. I mean, look at the Navalny sanctions. Uh, the United States and the EU has decided bravely to basically sanction five or six border prison guards. That is just not a serious response to, to Navalny. My hope is that the Biden administration is using this as a kind of a warning shot across the bow to Putin and is holding this fire in a way to help further consolidate its, its partnership, its coordination with the, with the Europeans. But if we continue on the current course, you can only expect that Putin's gonna push more and there's gonna be another invasion. That is just his track record. And don't you think Sarah, Sarah yeah. the West response to the Ukrainian invasion hasn't been that strong. I mean, we had no military response to the invasion in, in 2014. It took NATO three years to deploy 4,000 troops 
in, in, into Central Europe. That kind of passive response complemented with very weak economic sanctions has only emboldened Putin. And we, we see that in, in a steady escalation of Russian provocations and aggressions ever since 2014. So the question, I think you were getting at the heart of the challenge, Ian, you're rightfully saying the United States and the Western response to Russia hasn't been adequate, yet we're talking about asking them to do more on the China challenge. And so the question is, do you think we we can do both and, 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 and get the balance um, and calibrate it correctly so that the signal to Putin isn't that we're looking past Russia and creating a more kind of permissive environment for him to turn up the heat and, and take advantage of what he might perceive as a now an even more significant asymmetry of interest if we're all looking towards the Indo-Pacific. I mean, I think that's the crux of the challenge and at the, at the, at the heart of this debate about how do we right size what we're asking NATO to do. Absolutely. It's about striking that balance between the two, right? Uh, and the temporal horizons obviously play a role as well, as you noted, so that the balance will have to change uh, in the coming years. Uh, to answer your question, I absolutely think, uh, assuming and we're contingent, and this is the big if, there's political will, right? And on Russia, I would argue the EU can and should be playing more of a role, right? I think it was uh, a dumb move, to put it uh, uh, frankly, that Burrell went to Moscow when he did and that he didn't coordinate uh, with uh, the, the Biden team or the incoming Biden team at the time of his, uh, uh, of his trip. Right. So I think that is also an area where NATO and the EU need to talk uh, closer. But to, to go back to uh, the alternative to uh, doing both right, uh, is the divide and conquer, uh, as Ian named it, strategy. And I think that um, is not a strategy that would serve U.S. or European interests, right? And it's also a strategy, I've, I've called it sort of the pivot plus, right, uh, where uh, uh, the U.S. focuses on, on the Indo-Pacific and China's rise and, and, and leaves Russia to Europe. Um, and I don't think that um, will serve either uh, side of the transatlantic relationship well, because it ignores the fact that China it also poses challenges and threats to Europe. Um, so the the tricky period that we're going to have to navigate through in the alliance is these, I, I don't I hesitate to put a number of years on it, but I don't know if it's five years or, or, or more, where it's about striking this balance. Um, and it, it's going to, um, it's going to have to change. You know, maybe it's, uh, oh, go ahead, Ian, go ahead. I'll defer to my boss, Ian, please. <laughs> we don't have a choice. You know, it's, it's very difficult when you're in government to, to handle multiple uh, crises simultaneously, particularly this level of significance. So my heart goes out to the Biden administration and to our European allies. But as an analyst sitting on the outside, uh, you know, it, it's very clear to me, the alliance has to handle both simultaneously. We don't have a choice. It's the reality that's before us. But the good news is, is we have the resources necessary to prevail on both fronts. When you just look at the geoeconomic balance of power, you know, we're talking about 36 to $40 trillion in GDP with the United, United States and the European Union. Okay, it's a $1.2, $1.5 trillion uh, country, that's Russia. And then of course, China's about a 17, 18, $19 trillion economy with no allies. Uh, so we have the resources to do it. But as Sarah put out, do we have the political will to do it? And that's where U.S. leadership comes in. Because right now we're not putting the resources into the militaries that we should be doing. And we're not exercising our economic leverage in the way that we should. And I would argue we had been more robustly responding to Russian aggression over the last, since 2014. Not only would we be in a better position in the European frontier, we would probably have a China that's a little less confident in its ability to push against against the West. You know, I think it's almost, um, you, you both were talking about the divide and conquer, the problems with divide and conquer as a as a, an approach. Andrea's term, that's, uh, which is a good one, I think. So, so you know, maybe it's a matter of, of saying, well, it's not divide and conquer. It's when we talk about divide, we're not talking about a, a zero-sum divide. We're really talking about a blend. Uh, where, um, you know, because I think, Ian, what your point about, uh, 
you know, if all of a sudden uh, we said, okay, we're off to the Pacific, good luck here in Europe, you know, that would be a terrible thing. And while we wouldn't necessarily say that, events could unfold. So that's what begins to happen. And I would certainly hope we wouldn't take any more U.S. troops out of Europe. But I, but I, you know, I've been there. <laughs> I can see what that could happen. So it's really more not divide, but blend. And I, you think back to um World War II, you know, we had two theaters going then as well. And we didn't, we focused, there was a German focus, but we were in the Pacific too, uh, as were the Brits. And so, so it's a really a matter of trying to blend this approach so we can handle both. And there's not a strict division, but again, it comes back to political will, particularly in Europe and in the United States to put the money towards those things that, we're, we're, that we'll need to spend on to be able to do a blend. And uh, let's hope that it doesn't take a Pearl Harbor or an invasion of Poland uh, to galvanize us to do that. But uh, we've, it's got to be, I think, a blend, and we have to put the resources to it. And not only are we going to have a test, uh, as I said, with the strategic concept, looking at where the European allies are on this, but our own defense budget. You know, we're going to see pretty soon what that Biden defense budget is going to look like. And is it going to be a straight line on defense spending or is it going to be a recognition that we're really behind the power curve in a lot of areas, particularly because of 9-11 uh, and the and, and the dive. And, you know, we, we were diverted into looking at uh, fighting in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So that's going to be another test of our own political will. What are we going to do with that defense budget? Yeah, and in terms of political will, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is uh, the year of elections unfolding in Europe, right, uh, where uh, Germany most notably, but uh, early in 2022, France as well, the Dutch just had elections, right? Uh, and this will matter not just in terms of uh, transatlantic relations to China, but obviously Russia, right? Blinken's pretty strong statement in Nord Stream 2 from a few weeks ago signaled that we may be closer to sanctions on Germany. I think it's notable that this past week we had a member of Merkel's own party, Peter Bayer, come out in favor of a free on Nord Stream 2. And I just saw the latest polling out of Germany this morning. The Greens are doing quite well uh, in the polls and it uh, may be part of the next coalition government. And they've opposed the project. Uh, so we have to, when we're thinking about political will and domestic policy in this country, right, we also have to uh, recognize uh, the changing sea currents uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. Exactly. Absolutely. Great point. Okay, so maybe we, as a final question, just to do like a rapid fire kind of situation where if you had to make recommendations for NATO, so kind of moving along with this idea of a blended response and how NATO is going to need to do more or kind of calibrate its response to Russia while also taking on some added responsibilities on the China front. Are there things in that vein um, where you would put your greatest emphasis on what NATO needs to be thinking about. So maybe it's a couple of things on the Russia front. Maybe it's the top, you know, top one or two things they need to be doing on the China front. Maybe it's a kind of two for one options, things that NATO could be doing that are useful and effective against um, both adversaries. So what would you kind of recommend? What are your, what on, what's on your wish list for what NATO should be thinking about, um, in, you know, with its strategic review or, or whatever's coming down the line. So on the, on the, on the Russia front, on the NATO Eastern front, what I would want to see is I want to see a decisive mood move to putting Ukraine and Georgia onto a real path towards NATO membership to make clear to the Russian, there's no gray space uh, for contestation in the, in the region. I'd like to see that reinforced by a more robust European, West European presence in the Baltics on Poland in the, in the Black Sea region. Uh, German forces, French forces. I'd like to see that complemented with serious sectoral sanctions put on the Russians uh, that would be only removed when they're out of, out of Ukraine. Uh, that is a more serious posture towards dealing with Russia. On the Pacific side, um, I'd like to see a, the offer of a NATO-China Council. I'd like to see deepened engagement with our, our Pacific partners, particularly more robust military exercises and, and operations like freedom of navigation. I'd like to see an institutional presence established over there, a COE, a center of excellence, and perhaps a small military command. And I'd like to see a strategic concept reflect uh, a prioritization of the Indo-Pacific in addition to its, you know, defending uh, the North Atlantic area of, of, from Russia. And I'd like to see NATO 
be a driver for the military dimension of a Western, of a comprehensive Western military strategy, comprehensive Western strategy towards China. NATO should be the catalyst for the West military posture towards China. Thank you. So I'll tackle Thank you. I'll uh, I'll tackle them in reverse order, starting with China. I agree that the NATO China Council uh, is a good idea. Uh, I don't think we're at the stage where a uh, NATO small military presence or headquarters in the Indo Pacific would be a good idea for the reasons that uh, both Jim and I alluded to before. We need to build political will, and so focusing bilaterally uh, with members uh, at this stage is, I think, more politically feasible and. Realistic, uh, and uh, I would push those sorts of discussions a little bit further down the road. Uh, in terms of Russia, here uh, I also uh, would differ with uh, Ian. Not surprisingly, given uh, uh, how the conversation has unfolded, but I, I, I think uh, on, on Russia status quo is sufficient for for now. Uh, We have seen NATO, as I uh, would argue, do a lot in in the past couple of years. The U.S. has increased its uh, rotational presence and footprint in Poland as well. There are new uh, commands being set up between uh, the Latvians and Denmark. Um, So I think holding uh, the course on Russia right now um, uh, is is uh, is where I would come out. And what and what I would do is say is going back to something Sarah had said. You know when she said, "So what gives?" Um, we haven't said a word about Afghanistan and Iraq. And NATO's agreed to put more trainers into Iraq. Uh, you know, NATO has most of the troops in Afghanistan now. So uh, I think something that that's going to have to give is like what the U.S. is doing in the Middle East right now. I think NATO also we're going to have to we're going to have to take that off the table. Absolutely. Uh, at some some way somehow, uh, so that we can do this do this blend. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the uh, stabilization and training missions uh, in 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 Iraq, uh, which was just increased, uh, and uh, in Afghanistan, I think it's time for them to, to come to the end. I would just warn that when you evacuate a region like that, you will have responsibility for the chaos that ensues, and you will have an increased risk to U.S. security interests. And I'm old enough to remember 911, and remember how directly they can hit U.S. territory. Well, I, I can. I'm old enough to remember 2011 when we pulled out of Iraq and ISIS appeared. So, so Ian, you're right, and and I will certainly caveat what I said by by being able to do this responsibly. But, but my fear is um, again going back to what Sarah said. What gives at NATO as we take it on? But I guess what saves us is this: it's not that we have to ramp up right now. It's going to have to happen tomorrow. I think what it is is. Over the next number of years, we're going to have to make this turn of the super tanker a bit. Uh, and we're going to have to come up with something, I think, to, to deal with what Ian just brought up, which is the chaos that can come about. But, of course, in Afghanistan, that's part of a larger thing they're talking about right now in terms of the U.S. being in there is how can the U.S. disengage without, um, you know, helicopters on the roof of the embassy in Kabul pulling the last people out of, out of Afghanistan. So but I think if we do this over a period of time. And uh, together, it's going to have to be something that's choreographed. I think that's the only way we're going to be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think even though Ian and Sarah, you've both had some different views and perspectives, I think there's general consensus about this blended approach and that it has to happen kind of gradually and incrementally. Sarah, you talked about, you know, that the, 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 the blend, the mix is going to change over time. And so it seems like there's something really interesting there. And it's just figuring out how to right size the different pieces Um, and and that they will change over time. But anyway, this was a really fantastic discussion. I'm so thankful for both of you for taking the time to do it Um, and looking forward. I know this issue isn't going anywhere anytime soon. So looking forward to revisiting this uh, and maybe in in the next couple of months to check in and see where we are. But Ian and Sarah, thank you so much.